Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome, 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 everybody, to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, a medical doctor who's suffered with crippling anxiety for many years, as many of you know who you listen to this podcast. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Arash, who has written this book called Afraid. And it's a great book. I wanted to have him on the show because there's some real new things there. There's is not the same old rehash. There is something that we'll talk about called augmented reality, uh, which I think is going to be the wave of the future, even beyond psychedelics. But that's only my opinion and that kind of thing. So welcome, Arash. Nice to nice to have you here, my friend. Thanks for having me, Lars. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So uh, I think we uh, sort of agreed to start on. Uh, it's Halloween, so why people love to be so why do people love to be scared? So actually, the chapter of the book is "Haunt My Nerves." Why do we love to be scared? And, and before that, just just uh, for your audience, I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. I research fear and anxiety from brain to the body. I so said that. yeah, and one no 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 problem. Just uh, wanted them to know why I'm talking about this subject. Sure. And uh, so I have actually had. Uh, I've had fun exploring this uh, field of why we love to be scared. Like anxiety and fear are one of those most annoying emotions. We go pay and we do all we can, try our best to get rid of them. But then we also go pay to watch a horror movie, go to a haunted house, do all these thrilling activities and experiences. And... That's a good question. So my first answer to that question is biological. From a biological standpoint, the neurocircuitry and, of course, mental and physical experiences of fear and excitement and thrill are very much overlapping, right? In both mm -hmm. of them, you have several similar experiences in the mind and the body. Your attention is hyper-focused. You are mindful. You're just here. You're not thinking about the past and the future and your problems. Your heart is beating. You're a little bit – your breath is short and – all those feelings of being on edge that you have. So basically, there's a lot of overlap with, with it, between the two. And I believe when we do these controlled 
uh, scary activities because the sense of control is extremely important here, right? There's sure. a difference between somebody with a knife chasing you in on the street versus somebody with something that looks like a knife chasing you in a haunted house, right? The feelings yeah. is, is different, and a huge part of it is a sense of control. You know at the haunted house the person is not going to touch they're going to harm you. You know that you can leave at any time you want. You always have the remote next to you when you're watching the horror movie. You know you can pause it when you want to do it, right? So we basically excite the animal or better said, scare the animal. So a dog, well, my, my dog watching, and it may go off sometime uh, during our conversation because I have two great Pyrenees. So they're watching the TV and there's a wolf howling on TV. And there may be a coyote in the backyard. And for them, there's not much difference. They react to both in a similar way. That's the animal brain. My animal brain reacts to both in a very similar way. I am in the scanner. You show me a picture of a scared or angry face. And my amygdala fires up without me even knowing consciously. So we rile up the animal and we enjoy the ride. I think that's the biology. But there are a lot more aspects to it. And I've been thinking about them. One of them is basically an opportunity for mindfulness during those two hours that you are watching a good horror movie or not. It's a respite from the day-to-day life. It's respite from the anxieties of the day-to-day life. You're sitting there watching the movie. You're not at the meeting that is happening tomorrow or the exam that you had two weeks ago, and they're still bothering you or worrying about your issues and challenges with other people. Then we do them a lot of times with other people. So these are also bonding experiences, bonding opportunities. Mm. We rarely go to an amusement park or a horror movie or a haunted house alone, right? When emotions are heightened and yeah. intense, there is an opportunity for bonding. There are a lot of other aspects that I can uh, think of, but I just want to uh, pause for a second if you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just find it fascinating. You know, in your book, you talk about the hippocampus and the amygdala, right? And how the hippocampus provides context. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I now correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're in the horror movie and you're watching it in a theater where you can't just remote it off and it gets too much for you, you can just tell yourself, Hey, this is just a movie, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you can find a way. Now, would that be kind of engaging the hippocampus in the context and saying, look, you are actually safe, even though you feel afraid, even though there's this, you know, T-Rex coming at you, you're actually safe. Would that be an example of the hippocampus uh, modifying the amygdala? Absolutely. A combination of the hippocampus and the prefrontal lobe. Because the hippocampus is saying the context is context of a cinema, and the context is not the context of really a battlefield or being in the real Jurassic Park or anything that in reality would be scary. The other part is that, as you said, you remind yourself and you tell yourself, which is the cortical aspect of the cognitive brain stepping in and reminding you. And there, there is a balance which you need to be able to not be too terrified, but also excited, right? Some of mm. us find some horror movies stupid, and they don't even scare us. And we're like, well, this is... Um, the, right. Like, I remember the first time I watched a zombie movie, I was like, well, these hearts are not pounding, so there's no blood going yeah. to the muscles, so there's no oxygen in the muscles. Right. How are the muscles of the zombies working? And my friend said, yeah. listen, you got to shut down your cognitive brain to be able to enjoy this. Otherwise, you can't. So the balance between the animal and the human is also important. And sometimes it's the other way around. Like yeah. when I watched Exorcist when I was a teenager, it was horrifying yeah. to me because if it looked too real. It could happen in your own bedroom because right. it was happening in every room. So uh, I think it's a, yeah, it's a balance of these three players. I mean, if you want to uh, speak in a very general way, it's a balance of 
the, as you said, the, the amygdala, the hippocampus, most automatic functions, as well as the volitional cognitive functions of the prefrontal cortex. I think another very cool aspect of these activities is practice. I think it has a function. I remember, and I've written in the book when I was younger, I was watching uh, some uh, uh, movies, documentary about lions, and I see this tiny lion cubs are like fighting with each other and wrestling with themselves and with their parents. And my dad was watching it with me, and he's, he goes, Arash, do you know uh, why the cops are doing this? And I was like, well, they're playing. He said, yeah, they're playing, but more importantly, they are practicing. They're practicing fighting and hunting for when they grow up. So when you and I watch a horror movie, and I don't know about you, but I often am constantly thinking, if I were there, what I would do, right? Or sometimes you find yourself right. yelling at the at the actors, why didn't you do this? Why yeah. do you go there? Oh, you the grab, yeah, grab the baseball yeah. bat, do this and that. So constantly yeah. you're practicing and preparing yourself for if something like this happened, what I would do. And I think that's a function that we have because, I mean, fear and anxiety are so profoundly woven in, 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 into our lives because they're important because it's about you and I existing versus not existing. And this yeah. kind of practice has been important for us. And back in time, we would just listen to the elders around the fire telling us about the stories of demons and monsters and heroes through which we practice. You know, when you were talking there a second ago about watching the movie, and then getting getting engaged in the movie, there was an element of being lost in the movie. And I remember when I when my anxiety was really at its peak, and I would go to movies, and I would feel this. Even if it was kind of, I didn't go to horror movies, but like really exciting, suspenseful movies. There was this sense like, oh, this isn't my anxiety. This isn't my fears. This is something else that I'm experiencing. So I felt the fear. But there was no context because I didn't add my own worries to it because I was so engaged by the by the movie. But mm-hmm. at points, you know, when the movie was over because my system had been revved up for the last two hours, my anxiety, my own personal anxieties would come back because my body was in that state that it would sort of make it more uh, likely because what, you know, whatever your body feels, your mind will give you sort of almost like a confirmation bias. So I just found that really interesting what you just said about when you're in a movie and it's like, it could be scary, but it's like, well, that's not my worries. That's not my mm-hmm. hypochondriasis or my worry about my my child or my mom or whatever. That's worry, but it's not mine. And I find that really interesting. Like it's not personal to me. So I think in that sense, it sometimes puts the normal anxieties of life normal uh, average anxieties of day to daily life in context. I think one of the things right. these kind of, let's say, experiences do, for example, uh, my, the, my own experience, I've talked about it in uh, the book, was that like I go for, I, I was afraid of heights since childhood and to the point I couldn't go up the attic on the ladder. And I was dumb enough to sign up for a mule ride down the Grand Canyon in December where the trails are icy and slippery. So I'm on top of this mule and I'm terrified. Four hours later, I'm at the bottom of the canyon. And of course, that was a kind of a forced exposure therapy for me, which helped uh, tremendously with reducing my anxiety. Not that I recommend that to others. But then over the next few days, I felt actually calmer. And the reason Mm. for, and now I'm thinking is that the reason for calmness is that it puts my other anxieties in perspective. 
When you're on top mm. of that extreme height, you're looking at the possibility of your real annihilation. That's a real fear. That's a fear that my system evolved to interact and deal with. So now it's a real feel. Now my anxiety about, oh, am I going to score a grade on this exam exam or this uh, interview or, I don't know, the, this paper or publication, then it's put back in context. Now mm. I have a better – and sometimes uh, those who have been in war situations, uh, those who were not broken by traumas, I see sometimes in veterans or even first responders that – they deal with their day-to-day -day anxieties this way. They're like, well, I have seen what is real danger. And now it's easier a little bit for me to see these dangers in their context. And of course, maybe there's also an exercise for our fear system. Basically, some discharge. Yeah. And there's something like that with the immune system. There's a theory that the immune system is giving our kids so much, so many allergies because we live in such a clean world that immune system is looking for something to do. And it could be analogous to the fear system. You know, if we don't, if we don't have enough uh, fear system uh, exercise, it kind of fires it up for us. And while you were talking, that was really interesting because a friend of mine, I don't know if you know him. His name is Dr. Mark Goulston. He wrote this. He he wrote this book called Just Listen. That's over like three hundred thousand copies and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he's got a myelodysplastic disorder, which he's told everybody about. And he's doing this thing where he's saying, you know, I'm dying to tell you because he realizes, like, look, he's seventy five. He realizes mm -hmm. that this is probably, you know, likely going to kill him. So he said, the strange thing is, when I found that out, all my anxieties went away. Like just context, mm. you know, like it, it's kind of in a way like don't sweat the small stuff kind of in a, in a, in a very kind of uh, cheeky kind of way. But it was really interesting to talk because Mark, you know, he says like I kind of run a little on the anxious side, not horribly anxious, but that's kind of my, mm. that's his kind of thing. And he's, he's a mentor to so many of us and that kind of thing. And so he's, he talks about that. He says, you know, since that there's been this sense of peace, like, okay, I guess I don't have to worry about so much because I guess worry, you know, it's really trying to get control of the uncontrollable. And if you don't need to control it anymore because you're going to pass away, then that, that impetus for worry kind of gets pulled out of us. So I just find it really interesting to, to talk with Mark these days because he's really got this thing and, and he, he does a lot of work on podcasts and that kind of thing too. But this little thing where he talks about, mm -hmm. I'm dying to tell you, just talks about, okay, you know, it was really curious that my depression, my anxiety, not that he had, you know, horrible anxiety or depression. He said, all that disappeared when I found out that, you know, this is likely not going turn to out, turn out well for me. So I just find it really curious. Yeah, and that's that's that that's about the meaning you are able to create for your experience, right? One person could yeah. see this as okay, now I'm gonna be terminated and sit there and cry for the rest of the hours they have. One person could see it as, well, I'm in this amusement park. I was supposed to be here for ten hours. Now I know I'm for two hours. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna do as much as I can and ride as many of these rides as I can. So before I have to leave the park and I think what you see, yeah. So, so for him, I mean, I'm not in his head, but one possibility is that the other anxieties, because most of our anxieties in reality don't even make sense. My heart yeah. is pounding and my breathing is short because I have a meeting with my boss tomorrow. It doesn't right. make sense for a system which has evolved to, work when I'm dealing with a predator or someone coming at me with a spear or a sword or a rock now is, uh, is working so hard. 
So those anxieties, and, and yeah, when I face the reality of death, and I think death can clear heads. Death is one of the most real things in life. Death yeah. is one, most of our life is fantasies and illusions and not illusion in it, like a, a weird yeah. sense. Like we have like these, and I think another parallel I can make here is when, let's say, I, I was a spoiled kid. I was uh, okay. like, my parents, Iranian parents, took too much care of me. And then I come here. I'm on my own. And I'm working in this hospital in Detroit where I see, like, people with no resources, very underprivileged, with severe mental illness, no money, no home, with four kids. They have to deal with their challenges. Then I'm thinking, okay, what do you have to complain about, right? They gave yeah. puts things in perspective. You may be worrying about your fancy car, which is not fancy enough or too fancy. Then you go to – that's why I think charity, charitable work is good and helpful because you go and see where it could be, what it is, what's the realities of life, what are the real things that you should worry about. And then you come back and look at your own worries and your own anxieties and your own concerns and the things that make you unhappy. Like and and part of this like horror movies watching him because somebody got killed in this movie. You could get killed, but now you are sitting here having the fear reaction you would have to getting killed to I don't know having a the disagreement with your partner, right? Yeah, yeah. And if we have trauma as children, like sometimes that's the reality. Sometimes if you did have an abusive parent, that you do feel like your life's going to end when you argue with your with your with your partner. So it really, you know, that subjective nature of anxiety is so powerful. And it kind of reminds me of the people that I know that have lots of money. They live in a beautiful house. They have a wonderful, you know, appliances and wonderful car. And yet they're still really unhappy. So it's kind of like there, there is, I think, in, in us, especially if you've had trauma, there is this sense that you almost need something in what I call the worry bucket. We need something in the worry bucket because if there's nothing in the worry bucket, it's very, it's very worrying. So, and, and my anxious people will understand exactly what I said with that because it's almost like we need something to worry about. And if we have something to worry about that we know isn't real, which is basically all worries anyway, and I know this is kind of a circular argument, we believe in our worries because we know them. It's like that t-shirt that says, I'm in my own little world, but it's okay. They know me here right? We know those worries. We're familiar with those worries. So when our body feels alarmed, we go to those worries almost as a sense of familiarity, almost as a sense of security and knowing there is a certainty in those worries. But in those worries, when we believe them, when our prefrontal cortex and our brain believes them, then we start firing up our body and our body gets more and more alarmed. So we lose this ability to really understand what anxiety truly is because we not only, the first thing we do when, when we're in survival mode is we create more worries. I mean, when your body's in survival, the brain is struggling, looking around its environment, and if it doesn't see anything in its physical environment that's, a, that's fearsome, it'll make it up. So that's another reason why we make worries. And on top of that, that survival um, physiology, the norepinephrine and the cortisol, paralyzes the prefrontal cortex. So A, we make more threat that may or may not be real. And B, we lose the ability to see that those threats aren't real. So we make more threat and we believe the threat at the same time. So we go into this snowball of, of anxiety and how it just kind of takes us over. 
you always make me think a lot and I really <laughs> love that. So as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about two million different things. Well, basically, if I wanted to summarize what you're saying is that number one, it, number one is that a lot of our fear reactions are automatic. You talk about mm-hmm. childhood experiences of trauma. A lot of it's language of neuroscience, automatic language of psychoanalysis, unconscious. There, there is a lot of parts of my function. I've said this before. Uh, the parallel I make is that you put the food in your mouth, you chew it, you swallow it, and then you defecate it. In between, two million things are happening that you have absolutely no control over. And that a lot of that parallels with our brain functions. There's a lot of things happening that I don't have any control over, including the processing. So I am in a context of a disagreement with my partner. And 80% of me, I mean, I logically know, okay, my partner loves me. I love them. And we have a disagreement here. So what? But 80% of me already are feeling, is feeling that it's going to be an explosion we're going to be yelling and screaming at each other. I'm going to hurt her or she's going to hurt me. She's going to leave me. All these things that I had, like I watched parents fighting each other and there was threats of divorce and threats of like uh, leaving each other or somebody beat up the other person. I've learned all of these, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. it, as you said, we can cognitively talk about it and say, oh, no, it was in the past. But until there is that true emotional experience, of safety in this environment and repetition and repetition and repetition until it's corrected, it's not going to happen. I think the other part is you are saying that we want to make sense of the world and that gives us a sense of control. We always want to do that. Example, what is mental illness? We talked throughout the history. It's gods of the Olympus causing it, right? It's now monsters, it's demons, it's possession, it's the nature, it's your uterus, it's your liver, it's your humors. Now we're talking about the brain, (laughs) right? So now, so we always need an explanation. And you say when my body reacts or my um, body brain, they react to something that I'm not aware of. Why? Then I look around and say, oh, it should be this. I have an exam tomorrow, so it is related to the exam. It could be. And then they interact with each other because you and I try to understand things in a very simplistic way. We say it's either this or, or, or that, but it could be 10 different things combined with each other leading to what is happening. And then the other parallel I was making as you were talking was sometimes one of the reasons we don't like to meditate or sit in silence is you have some of your ordinary, usual, familiar worries. When you stop those, deeper worries come up. You stop those deeper worries that terrify you. It's as if we are using these ordinary day-to-day worries as a shield against a those other things that scare us. We use monsters we know to keep away and out the monsters we don't know. And of course, I think the other part is, again, that magical thinking way of sense of control. I worry, so I prevent, as if my worrying is doing something. If you stop worrying for an hour, you're terrified that something bad is going to happen. Like, because as you said, I'm not used to things being good for you. I stop if I'm not ready, someone's going to punch me in the face. Yeah. And the other thing that I see with a lot of my anxious patients that are chronically anxious is that they had a lot of chaos in their childhood. So say, for example, they had an explosive alcoholic father and things would be fine for four, six, eight weeks. And then all of a sudden there'd be a huge explosion uh, the whole house would be thrown into chaos. 
uh, he would probably have this sort of remorseful thing for two or three days. He'd come back like with candy and apologies and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then it would just sort of get into this acquiescent period where, you know, it was quiet again, but the Mm -hmm. kids always knew that the quiet was going to get exploded. It could have been a week. It could be a month. It could be a year, but they always knew it was coming. So now in their lives, when they embrace peace, like meditation or whatever, there's always this thing in their subcortical mind, like, when is this going to explode? Like, this was my history mm-hmm. as a child. This is the patterning that got put into my nervous system that, that don't trust calm because it was, it was always exploded by some sort of catastrophic action. So that's what I see with people is that, that they're afraid to trust calm. And if you're afraid to trust calm, it's going to be very hard for you to get that security in your body and that sense in your body that you need to kind of recover from chronic anxiety. And calm a lot of times feels unreal there. That's, uh, I, when I, I come from a big crowded city in Iran, something mm-hmm. like New York. So I'm used to chaos. I'm used to cars honking and driving over each other and uh, crazy loud noises and everything and constant traffic and crowd. So I came to America. I'm living in the suburb. And for the first six months, it felt like I'm in a dream state. There's no people on the streets after 8 p.m. There are no cars. People don't look at you. The cars are not honking. It's so silent. And it felt unreal. I still like feel I, when I'm in the suburb, I feel 80% awake. When I go to the city, I feel 100% awake. Still is, that is with me. So an anxious mind, a brain that is used to chaos and threats and anger and explosion, sometimes even find, finds it boring and sleepy and unreal to be, you know, yeah. well, I mean, a lot of people find uh, there's this joke that uh, people find good guys or good girls boring, right? They go for yeah. the, uh, for the uh, problem, uh, problem uh, uh, people for dating because this seems unreal. This seems as, as the, the same word. It's, un, uh, it's boring. And my brain is used to be stimulated by exciting, negatively exciting things. And we were talking, we started our conversation with the overlap between the excitement, uh, the thrill and fear secretary. So my brain gets sleepy when I am not in a situation of danger created by others or myself. Yeah. And I think that that's true with a lot of relationships. I think a lot of, you know, my friend, Dr. Nima, he, he talks a lot about trauma bonds, you know, and how we are attracted to the characteristics of our youth especially if it's traumatic. So if you did have an alcoholic father who yelled and screamed, there's, a, there's an attraction that people have for those people. There's also a repulsion as well. It's like, I never want to go back there again. But it's amazing how often I talk to my, my clients, patients, whatever you want to call them. And they're like, I just keep going for the same type of person. And I always say like, how did that manifest in your in your youth? How are you unconsciously, and Freud called this the repetition compulsion, as you know, but how are you manifesting the sort of ambiance of your youth unconsciously in your adulthood? And I've been married three times. Like I know how people do this. I know that I would pick relationships with that were with chaotic people and they wouldn't mm-hmm. last. And, and the charge that I would get, like in my 20s, I, I learned, you know, as time went by, or you'd think I would, but I learned that the charge that you would get from that, 
I think was just a remnant of my old, you know, traumatic programming as a child that, you know, I couldn't trust my dad. I, that, that the chaos was so, it was so infused in my youth Mm -hmm. that I sought out that chaos in the people. So people that were kind of straight laced and whatever were boring, you know, (laughs) there's this funny, uh, a clip out now about, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish with I was that. just going to say, there's, there's this funny, there's this funny clip out right now about a guy who only gets uh, sexually turned on if the woman has like, like crazy traits. You know, I would phone uh-huh. you ten times, and I would make sure that you know, you, I went through your phone, and you know, and it's like the guy was like, wow, this is really turning me on. But it was such, uh, like, a funny example of exactly how that Freudian repetition compulsion works. And that's why I say to people, what was normal? What were the patterns that were normal in your childhood? Write them out and say, take that template and go, how am I putting this template on my, my current life? And it's, it's, it's disappointing and illuminating at the same time. So today, today, tonight is my making parallels night. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking was that majority of people, majority of people mm-hmm. do not date or marry outside of their tribe, right? Most people True. date and marry within their own culture, within their nationality, within their race. Why? Because of the familiarity. Now, I want to extend and expand that to the emotional tribe. The emotional, regardless of how much I may hate my culture, still a culture that resembles right. my culture is easier to connect with and link with because the rest feel unfamiliar. The rest, you don't connect with it. And that's I would expand to your emotional tribe, which means the tribe within which you grow up and you're familiar with and you're comfortable with. That's why we keep repeating and going back and back and back. And now I want to go deep neuroscience and talk about pattern recognition, which again happens in the hippocampus. So anytime I see an image, that image is broken into its principal components. And then each of those components is matched against what I know from the past. I put them all together. Mm. I say, okay, the tail looks like this. The face looks like this. Body and the legs, blah, blah, blah. Now, okay, this is a lion. And now if there is part of that lion is behind the bars and I don't see or I don't know, it's covered or missing, then I will still put everything together and say, okay, with 80% certainty, this is a lion. There's a chance it could be a big dog, but now we, I decide it's a line. Or when you're reading, even that there's a pattern uh, completion, which means, as yeah. I said about parts, missing parts of the line, but also like there's, there's misspelling in the writing, or there may be even letters uh, missing from a word. You still can understand it. That's pattern completion. We complete, complete what is missed. Then there's noise reduction. So I go back to the research study many years ago was done. They put these tiny projectors on your pupils and project the image on the retina. And what it does is that because we usually, as we look, I'm looking at your image on my screen and my eyes move. So never a pixel of your image sits on the same retinal cell of my eye forever. So it constantly moves. So because if it's Mm. set on the same, it would habituate the same way you and I right now, before I told you this, we're not feeling alcohol on ourselves. That's called sensory gating. So by putting these projectors, they stopped that process of, they basically led to habituation. So they created, they put the projected an image of, let's say, a flower. One of uh, petals, one petal of this flower was larger than the rest. So what happened was that the image would fade 
because of habituation, then the brain would use pattern completion and the person would reseed a flower while all the petals were the same size because pattern completion or noise reduction fake right. fixed that abnormal petal. Same applies to our relationships. I'm with a nice person. Ross is a nice person. He's so kind and friendly and I understand him and he understands me. But part of me basically sees his niceness as noise. And I mm. project my past. Okay, he is a man of this and this kind of relationship. And people like this, I've been in the past in the relationship, have been hurtful. So he should have hurtful intentions. That's something that happens in therapy, right? What they call as corrective emotional right. experience in psychotherapy is you see the therapist, you basically regress and see the therapist as a paternal or parental figure. And you keep projecting onto them those aspects. You see them as, oh, they're judging me, they're criticizing me, now they're angry at me, all this, that. And then even though they repeatedly show you they are not, they're empathic, they're, they're nice, they're there to care about you, but you keep feeling, but you have to keep doing and doing and doing and doing until new learning happens that, okay, now I have this new pattern. Ross could be a nice person, doesn't have to necessarily be a hurtful person. So, and, and would you say then the, the hippocampus gets a hold of that and provides new context? And that's maybe what, what sort of uh, ameliorates that amygdala fear response? Would that be? And I guess pre-FC gets in there too. The prefrontal cortex gets in there and says, hey, we've got experience that goes against you know, what, we've, what we've kind of our instinct would be. And now it's almost like, in a way like a systematic desensitization in a way. It's like, well, my, my instinct is that this person's not going to be nice to me, but he's been nice to me like 50 times in a row. So I'm going to have to start, you know, at a, at a deep subcortical level, understanding that, Hey, he actually is a safe person. I would say, it, uh, I would say it's all the above. So one part is the first thing that happens, you talk to your therapist or whoever, whatever's happening and you gain the cognitive insight that, well, no, I logically know he's a nice person. I logically know, still emotionally don't know, still my emotions. Every time right. I'm in that situation, every time I have a disagreement with my partner, I'm on alert, right? I logically right. know my partner is not going to hurt. Gradually then, as you said, the hippocampus, as we, the same way we do extinguish fear responses to, let's say, uh, I'm afraid of dogs and we gradually expose me to a safe dog and the extinction learning happens and then hippocampus basically, as you said, comes in and says, in this new context, in this kind of dog, you're okay now. And then we see the next kind of dog and the next kind of dog and they gradually expand the learning that, okay, uh, like, uh, dogs that are pet dogs are usually nice and usually okay. You don't have to be afraid. But the pitfall here is that what we know from current state of neuroscience is that when extinction learning happens, it's not eradication of the original fear memory. The original fear memory mm -hmm. still is there in the amygdala. You have so developed a new learning next to it that says, okay, Slow down, we are good, we are okay here. So there's always a possibility of, and you know, when we are under immense stress, a lot of those old patterns and monsters come up because now we are weaker emotionally and cognitively and ego power to deal with those. So now they start to leak or they start to grow back and you have to kind of continuously be aware and weed, the, weed this emotional garden. Yeah. And I think that's when, you know, deep breaths, physiological sigh, 
you know, going into sensation, uh, anything that brings you into the present moment allows you a little bit of objectivity when it comes to seeing those things. But if your body is in this alarm state, you will tend to go back, fall back into that old groove of fear. And, and then the confirmation bias kicks in and says, okay, I am just going to see things that are fearful. I mean, you, it's not a, it's not a conscious decision, but that's just what the brain does. When we feel, when we're in survival mode, the brain unconsciously will search for things that are harmful and, and, it, and it selectively picks out harmful things and anything that's not harmful, it ignores. So it's sort of, you know, the bunny rabbit falls into the background, but the, but the, the, the dog, even though it might be a tame dog kind of. I wonder if that dog's going to attack me, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. So it's just like how, and I guess getting back into like, how do we treat anxiety? You know, a lot of anxiety, I believe are these subcortical programs that started when you were a child that you default into as an adult. So if you, you know, your parents yelled and screamed at each other and you're at a grocery store and you hear yelling and screaming on the aisle over from you that amygdala will fire you right back into that old bodily sensation of that same thing. And it will trigger like maybe a panic response. You may not even be aware of it. That's why you get a panic attack or something that just sort of knocks you off balance. Because when you're, when your body is off balance like that, I do believe that we go, we fall automatically. We default, I guess is the best word back into those fear programs. And then because of the confirmation bias, we've defaulted back into those fear bias, that fear program, and then we only see what's fearful and we only believe what's fearful. So we get into this reciprocating loop of seeing fear and then feeling fear and seeing fear and feeling fear. And that's what I, I call the alarm anxiety cycle. And that's why I think it's so hard to eradicate that the alarm, that anxiety sensation when we are in a difficult situation, we're in an abusive situation or our partner's an alcoholic or whatever. It's very hard to get ourselves into a place where we can actually heal when that, those old traumatic programs are kind of running the show. And as you say, those programs are never gone. We can never find a, we can never kind of get rid of them. We can overwrite them on some level, but those overwriting programs will only last provided we're not in that stressful situation and default back into those fear modes again. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And it's so, so the attention, the memory, the cognition, and the emotions are all intertwined and they feed into mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. If I had too much coffee and I'm feeling anxious, my attention is now over what could be scary and could be dangerous. The memories related to my, my emotions when we are sad, when I don't know, when you had a uh, disagreement to fight with someone, all the bad memories about them are easier to recall versus when you're having a very good time with them, right? So right. they all feed into each other. Let's say I'm in social. I always use this example in my uh, classes with psychiatry residents. I say, if I was, I had fear and anxiety of public speaking, I come here and I'm looking at all of you. And I'm terrified. And because of that fear, my attention is biased. Now I'm looking at you. Well, this one is uh, on their computer, which means they are finding me boring and they are texting. And the other one is look, they had their phone in their hand. They're probably texting their friend to tell how stupid my talk is here. This other one is sitting like this. They're on guard and they are basically feeling uncomfortable. And I keep collecting data proving that this is a thing because I want to watch it. That makes sense from the animal brain standpoint. I'm looking for evidence. Because I'm scared. I'm looking for the things that I should watch for. So now I 
have created a hostile perception of the environment for myself, which leads to me being more anxious and also me going on defense and me acting a little bit weird and awkward. And then they look at me, they're like, what's wrong with this guy? And he's acting awkwardly. And they start to react accordingly. And this the, the cycle, we keep going on. And then I have proven that these people don't like me because they wrote a letter to their uh, program director that this is not a good professor. And we do this in our relationships with others. Yeah. If I am, let's say I start talking to or dating a person who is not of the emotional tribe I am with, I keep creating those situations without me even knowing because I'm terrified, right? I'm terrified they're going to leave me. And then I start acting the way that feels clingy to them or feels suspicious or feels controlling to them. And if they are of the same game, they will will continue with me the game. If they are from a different tribe, they will leave me. And worst case is when they are from an emotionally abusive tribe and they see Mm -hmm. the vulnerability in me because there are emotional predators out there. And they are looking oh, yeah. for your vulnerabilities. And when they see the vulnerability, so it's not that I always go and actively seek those. A lot of times they find me because I am a good prey there, right? There are hunters out there yeah. and they find me as the prey. And then yeah. they come to me and then they, they, they hunt me. And they, I, I, because I'm familiar with that pattern, I get stuck with them. It's just a lot of times, I'm sure a lot of uh, people listening to us would relate to this. You're in a relationship, you and your friends all logically know this is terrible. And part of you cannot. It's like, it's like I'm not in control. I'm dreaming something, someone else and something else is running the show. Yeah. You don't know him like I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Or bullying, you know, it's a, it's a classic, bullying is a classic example. Bullies know the kids they can pick on, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had a difficult childhood, so I was off balance. So the bullies knew that I was off balance. So they picked on me, not every year, but I mean, I went through a couple, two or three years in there that it was pretty uncomfortable for sure. So it is one of those things that we do pick up on energy of other people, uh, both positive mm-hmm. and negative. Like both, mm-hmm. I really like this person. There's something, there's something I really bond to this person right away, immediately. Or there's something about this person I just don't like or I don't trust. Mm-hmm. A lot of it mm-hmm. is just unconscious. Like we just don't, it's not that, you know, we're cognitively, it's not like they've done anything specifically, but we just have this feeling, this sense. And I also have that, and I also, also see those kind of trauma bonded relationships in these avoidant attachment relationships, whereas one's an avoidant, they don't they don't want to be uh, connected. They're afraid of connection, and then they match up for some reason with an anxious avoidant who chases them. So they they get into this spiral over and over and over again, where the anxious one. Um, uh, pulls back finally. I can't take it anymore. You're just too much for me. And then the avoidant one says, "Oh, you're running away from me now. I'm going to chase you." And they get into this dance over and over and so much anxiety so much anxiety because both of them are secu- are looking for security in a relationship ultimately like at a consciousness level we're all kind of looking for that safety but they're creating their own demons and they get attracted to their own demons so there's one school of thought that says well we get attracted to our own demons as a way of of resolving them You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't know if I'm quite that optimistic. I think we get attracted to our own demons because it reminds us of the familiarity in our childhood, even if that familiarity was destructive or abusive or not good for us. So it's kind of interesting, like who you're attracted to and, Mm -hmm. and how long your relationships last. 
So, you know, we're talking about anxiety and, and, and how that all sort of plays out because fundamentally anxiety is, is mistrusting love for me. You know, I mean, you're more of a researcher and that kind of stuff, but for me, fundamentally anxiety is mistrusting love. When I grew up with my father, who I love very much and who loved me very much, but every once in a while he would go psychotic or depressed or, or manic or up for four or five days at a time. And I learned I couldn't trust him. So I learned I couldn't trust love. And because, you know, philosophically, I think there is only love and fear. When I feared my dad and couldn't trust love for him, the only thing left to fill up my psyche was fear. And then I would look for, for rational reasons to, to, to be afraid. And then I would worry. And the worry would become this self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think to heal, it's like we have to learn how to retrust love and retrust safety. And it's so hard to do that because as a child, you didn't have that template. And as you say, we create these templates, we create these patterns and these programs, and they don't go away. Mm -hmm. The best we can do is kind of augment them. Which brings and, me up to, to you know, and, augmented reality. But keep going. Go ahead. And I'll go, uh, we'll go back to augmented reality. But what you were explaining is basically, first of all, I agree with you. I don't believe that repetition compulsion, as Freud said, is an attempt to master for mastery over the past trauma. I think it's just that's what you know. And sometimes, a lot of times, what you know is a relationship. For example, I know a relationship is... One person abusing and dominating the other person. That's how I've learned relationships are. So now I'm in a relationship with a person who feels weaker than me, was less, more conflict averse, and I try to dominate them. Now I'm with a bully and I let them dominate me because I don't know any other way of relating to others. So I either yeah. become the aggressor, I become the oppressed. I don't know any other way. And then when you were talking about uh, basically anxiety and love, we're talking about conflict because if something is just scary to me, why the hell am, would I stay there? I would just run away, right? So there yeah. are things that keep me there. There are desires, there are affections, there are emotions, there are natures, there are instincts that keep me there, and that leads to the conflict. If it was a, if instead of your father we were talking about a grizzly bear, you would not be there. The problem no. solved. Problem solved, right? So we are right. there because there are other things. Same with the relation, any rela human relationship. There are affections, yeah. there are emotions, there are loves, there are lusts. There are things that are involved here. A child bond because nature, the na nature, the natural way is we bond with our parents, and that's one of the deepest, uh, most primitive, most uh, primordial relationships and connections that we we create. So this all makes sense that. Anxieties that sustains are anxieties which are over conflictual situations where there are other things that there are attractions there also. If it was, again, if it's just a grizzly bear or an angry lion, I'm not going to be there. So anxiety, it, there won't be anxiety. There'll be just a fear. Unless, of course, there are situations, I don't know, you could be uh, held hostage by the ISIS and you have no control over it. So that's anxiety and it's going to stay there forever. But in normal, like usual life situations, you can leave. You have a sense of you have control. Yeah. Every morning I get up. Of course, I'm not talking about a child. I'm talking about like an adult relationship because children right. depend on their parents. Every morning I get up, I can choose to leave my job, my relationships, my friends, everything. I choose to say because I choose to say because I feel there are benefits or protections or securities there, whether they are real or they are imaginary. Now we can talk about augmented reality. Yeah. 
which I love. You know, this is this is part of your work that I just love and I see so much potential with. So, I mean, you're using augmented reality now in social anxiety and like phobias like spiders and that kind of stuff. Just tell my audience like what what this what this augmented reality is about. So we all know about virtual reality. You wear the goggles and you're in a different world. So augmented reality is the next wave uh, where uh, actually Apple is going to release their new augmented reality technologies next year. And that might be uh, the way some people are more familiar with it. So it's like I parallel I make is Iron Man. Iron Man's goggles were like, you see, they're see-through, they're like sunglasses. You see the real world, and then there are other digital objects overlaid on the real world. So you can interact with digital objects in the real world. So what we have been using, which is, and I'm proudly uh, uh, the inventor of this technology, not the hardware, but the treatment technology, where you basically, let's say we start with fear of spiders, you can I wear the goggles and you as my therapist can put a spider or tarantula of any color, type, size in my environment and command the behavior of this tarantula. So the tarantula can crawl from the floor to the uh, wall to the ceiling. So the roof, uh, yep. going yeah, so so going back a little bit to like okay, Pokemon Go was the most dumbest uh, uh, form of augmented reality. <laughs> so now we are talking about advanced. Uh, 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 augmented reality that can interact with the environment and with the person. So we started with this. Because proof of concept, I have an idea, but who knows, will digital objects really be scary? They were terrifying to people. We, we show, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the skin uh, moisture of skin, skin conductance responses, autonomic responses, same, equal to seeing a real-life tarantula. And everybody in less than one hour use of this technology for treatment was able to touch a real-life tarantula or touch the container uh, of that tarantula. Now we are doing it for fear of dogs, running the same clinical trial. I'll bring my own big great Pyrenees. And last week, the patient came and hugged my dog after one and a half hour of treatment. So then we went to, in a, in a major leap, we went to basically, we started working with uh, a company that had worked with Disney and Marvel and the gaming companies. And now we have digital humans in front of you. We wear these goggles, you're in this room, and gradually people walk in through a virtual door to this room, start talking to each other, start talking to people of diverse race, age, size, uh, outfits, behavior. We have a crowded room. We are using it for first responders. So we have a police station, fire station, a grocery store. You are, again, in this real room. So it's not virtual reality that you have to sit and use joysticks. No, you walk around. You go to these characters. They come to you, and your therapist is next to you, and you talk to them. And we have had tremendous results. So we have started to use recently, and like I have police officers who are just doing grocery shopping online because of their PTSD, because PTSD brain is in constant uh, the screening of the environment. So you don't want sure. to be out. You don't want to be in the public. And I'm seeing like good results. Like this woman, she got, uh, she went to a graduation ceremony and sit there and got promoted at work. And then now, as we have talked about it, you also have a library of characters. So you choose this middle-aged white man. You put it in front of your patient and you define their behavior, frowning, smiling, whatever you do and type in what they say so they interact with the patient. So the, now the utility is beyond PTSD, social anxiety. It could be autism spectrum, severe mental illness, dating practice, job interview practice, all human relationships that you want to practice. And we can choose the human that triggers you most, right? Our patients that like feel terrible near, let's say, older men. I had this patient who felt terrible near these older men because he was abused by older men who, when he was a child. Uh, and then at the next stage, 
to get it even more exciting, we are plugging in artificial intelligence. So you can write a character, you write a brain of that character, and then that character will have an automated conversation with your patient. So it's a very exciting technology. I think it has immense utilities uh, in our field. And you had actually a brilliant idea about its use yourself. With, with well, talking yeah, to I your mean, childhood, I, yeah. What I would love to do. Yeah, I mean, what I believe, you know, that anxiety is fundamentally a mind-body disconnection where we dissociate into our anxious minds and our worried minds and an adult self-child self disconnection. So what happens is the child gets traumatized on some level, trauma too much for, it to, for the child to bear. It stuffs it down into the unconscious. And then as the body is a, a representation of the unconscious mind, through the insula in the brain, which we've talked about a little bit before and won't get into here, but basically creates this emotional signature in our body of this fear, of this pain. And then that is what we react to. Like our bodies feel the same way now that they would when we were eight years old and our mom's yelling at us. Like they feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So of course we're going to feel A, uh, off balance. We're going to feel like we're eight years old because the amygdala has no sense of time. So you feel mm -hmm. like an eight-year-old, even though you you know consciously that you're, you know, you're not eight years old. But mm -hmm. you can create this idea of actually talking with that younger version of you and saying, you know, hey, you know, and looking at something that looks just like you, like you are actually interacting with a younger version of you and saying, hey, you know what? I've got you. I'm going to look after you now, like in a way that you didn't feel back then. I'm going to show you that you're safe now. I'm going to make sure that you feel seen, heard, loved, and protected. I'm going to be your protector. And because one of the reasons why I think we, we suffer so much with anxiety is the adult in us doesn't want to go back to the child because the child holds all our pain. You know, it's mm -hmm. still stored in their body, still stored in their neural circuits. And the reason uh, the, the child doesn't trust us as adults is that we've been abandoning them for so long. We don't want to go back into that pain. So we just, as we get older, we just split farther and farther adult self from child self, which of course creates more alarm, which of course creates more anxiety. So I had this idea in talking to you that if we had this, uh, you know, virtual reality program where you created your eight-year-old or your 12-year-old or whatever, and it looked and acted just, you know, how, how were you in situations? Well, I was pretty timid. I was pretty shy. So mm -hmm. you, you create this kind of avatar of this shy eight-year-old that looks like you because we have pictures, right? Mm -hmm. And you're interacting with this thing and the context. And that's what I think about augmented reality. It's the context that actually shifts those brain patterns. You know, you can learn how to, you know, uh, play hockey in a practice, but until you're in a championship game, it's a different, if a different story. So it just sort of takes that, it puts you into the real playing field of life, into the real playing field of your actual neural wiring and overwrites that program so that you can go, you can, that child in you can feel safe again. And you can have this conversation because so many times you'll see on Instagram, it's like, what would you say to your eight-year-old self? You know, it's like, well, this is mm -hmm. freaking it, right? This is exactly, you're actually talking to your eight-year-old self. And I think the healing from that would be phenomenal. That's my instinct anyway. And it's a, it is a brilliant idea. I mean, uh, I haven't got there yet, but, uh, and you know, these programs are ex extremely expensive. But what I've had is yeah. I, uh, you know, I had a... Can I do a cameo in one of these scenarios? So a version of myself wearing a suit comes in. I mean, the animation artists were too nice and they put some hair on my head. But I yeah. put this character in front of me 
and I feel different about this. And it's so, mm -hmm. it feels so real to your brain because it's 3D and combined with real world <laughs> that I, as the creator of this, I still cannot, I do not walk through these characters. I walk around them automatically. So I'm looking at this guy and I'm, I'm like, I want to go hug him because I have a different feeling towards this character, which is me versus another one. So I think you have a very cool point and I have, made my mission for the next cycle to try to do that because we're going to create child characters and see how that works. Yeah. And you said you might make a child character of me, which would be amazing. I'll I do my love, best. I would love yeah. that. I, yeah. I know. I know. They're like $250,000 or something <laughs> like that at this point. Yeah. But it's like, you know, when, when, uh, when Pong came out, it was like a thousand dollars and then mm -hmm. now you could buy it for eight cents. So it's just like, but the idea for me, because so much of what I do in kind of uh, therapy, and now therapy just seems kind of rough because I kind of take people into that bodily sensation of the child who was, say, abused, abandoned, neglected, lost their parents, that kind of stuff. I take you into that felt sense of that. And I do believe that I do engage your, your um, prefrontal cortex. I do engage your insula, your anterior insula, and you feel in your body the same way you did when you were, you know, 12 years old and your parents were getting divorced. And mm -hmm. now can we, can we, can we take you on a different path? Because the path you went on as a 12 year old was a very defensive path, you know, a very survival based path. Now, can we go back and get a do over where we can take that 12 year old and go, Hey, here's another door. Here's another way you could go with that. And it actually turned out okay. Like everything turned out okay. So it turned out, or it actually turned out really good, really well. So can we, you know, kind of imprint that on the nervous system and change that emotional signature of pain to one that's okay, this is not comfortable. I don't like the, the, the memory of my parents getting divorced, but I'm not overwhelmed by it anymore. Just like people aren't overwhelmed by spiders. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times this is in this, within these therapy situations, what happens yeah. is basically uh, an emotional understanding. Sometimes all of a sudden happens. I've been banging my head against the same wall. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's a kind of an aha moment of, wow, the reason I'm stuck in this relationship, the reason I'm stuck in this situation, the reason I have been keeping doing this and feeling although feeling uncomfortable is oh this thing that happened when i was 10 years old and that's why i hate myself that's why i let this other person do this to me and then when that emotional kind of an emotional cognitive revelation happens then it it at the least it provides you with is a compass now you know okay that's what drags me to that territory and this is how i can get out of it and if your body feels differently, which it will as you feel safer, mm -hmm. you can you can tolerate the old pain if you were like abused, abandoned, neglected, whatever. Huge amount of pain. But when you start seeing there's a, there's almost another version of you in there, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I'm just going to jump over to the other version of me and allow that. It still hurts. Of course it still hurts. But now at least I have some relief from that pain and I mm -hmm. can see a pathway out of that. Whereas if you're buried under that trauma, there's no way out. Like you don't see a way out. But if there's an actual feeling that there is a way out, that there is some sort of relief from that pain, even if it's just you go from a 10 out of 10 to an 8 out of 10, that's still a sense that, oh, there is a way out. 
there is actually a way that I can move that actually makes me feel better. As opposed to when you were a child and say you were getting beaten or abused or whatever, there was no way out as a child. And then we just get into this learned helplessness, victim status that, that all anxiety people have, including me, of this just this sense of victim victimhood. And if we can get into a place where we just even dip our toe, even get outside of victimhood, even for a second or two or five, you know, it starts changing that neural pattern that, oh, this isn't actually going to kill you. You're, there is actually a way out of this. And it's like, once you see that there's a way out, and this is kind of like the the basis of MDMA therapy too, is like, once you see that you are just pure love and, and that it, it can be very helpful but again, what I find with you know the psychedelics and MDMA and all, is when the when the when the drug wears off, you go right back to the same patterns you were before. Now, usually less because you have kind of seen the other side. You have kind of seen that I have tremendous amount of love for myself. That's when I when I did MDMA. That's what I saw, and it did stick with me a bit after that. But it wasn't like I did MDMA therapy and I was like, oh my God, thank you Lord, I'm healed. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. there was there was this sense like, okay, well. I think what I'm saying here is there was this sense like, oh, maybe there is a way out of this anxiety thing, you know? And I think because so many people tell me that that they feel like anxiety is a life sentence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sense of control, that knowing that you can do something is extremely important in reducing anxiety. And you're right. A lot of times, like, you hear people keep complaining about what they're stuck in a marriage, a relationship, a job, a situation. Of course, there are some few who enjoy just complaining, but there's a lot of other people who are honest about it. They really feel like a victim because that's, as you said, the seven-year-old child that does not feel they have the ability to leave this relationship. But the true logical reality that a lot of times I try to remind people is that every second you can just decide to leave. Again, unless you're under the control of ISIS or you're a tiny kid, you can leave anything. I can leave my job tomorrow regardless of whatever. There's a cost to pay for it, right? And the cost could be higher, the cost could be lower, but the cost is not detrimental to my existence. If I leave my friends, my partner, my job, my this, that, it's not going to kill me. And that is very, very empowering. And going back to psychedelics, I think one of the things those experiences, and we have, I have to be very cautious, uh, uh, what is the word, uh, recommending sure. or not recommending them. Uh, sure. I think those kind of experiences, and they, they come with a lot of uh, uh, different ways. I mean, I, I've told you before, I had that experience when I was in Tucson next to the uh, cacti in the desert. I just had it. It just came to me. Mm-hmm. And those provide you with a compass. I think that's just the beginning of the work. They tell you, look, there's this place you can be. And then the rest of it is that now I know there's a place I can be and it takes hard work. And I think I've had both you and I agree, all these things on Instagram, oh, three things that are going to fix you for the rest of your life within two minutes. That's impossible. So you learn now that I'm going there. And then the rest is hard work. It still is hard work, but there's hope. Because you both, you and I know through personal experiences and career experiences, there is hope. And I think we have to be the messenger of that hope. People don't have to get be stuck in it forever. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point. That, And there is control. And I think that's the reason why 
people that go into ice baths or cold plunges. I think there is something in that. Like if you look at the way the the dorsal horn, the tracks of the of the the nervous system go up, the back part of the, the dorsal tracks carry pain and temperature. And the parts of the brain that uh, metabolize physical pain are often overlap with the parts of the brain that 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 tolerate mental pain or show mm-hmm. mental pain. Mm-hmm. So when we go into a cold plunge, we're overwhelming that pain circuit. Not only that, but we are doing it, we are making the conscious choice. I'm going to go into, I went into this thing at Whistler and it was, it was like very, very cold, like 10 degrees Celsius. So a lot of people do ice baths. It wasn't even that cold, but it was very uncomfortable, very painful. But there was just this huge sense of empowerment. Like I chose this pain. Whereas when you're a child, you have no choice. You are, you are a, a helpless victim. But now I'm saying to myself, I'm going to put myself in this cold plunge. It's going to really hurt. And it did. But when I was in it, it was like there was these five seconds where I would feel this immense sense of peace. And then, of course, the pain would come back. Mm-hmm. And then this sense of peace and this pain. And then for about three or four days, I just felt this immense sense of peace. And I think that's one of the the benefits of doing these cold plunges is that we put ourselves in a painful situation because as you said, it's not just the one and done. You don't just go through a painful thing and all of a sudden you're healed. But it's just this, this ability to kind of go, you know what? This hurts, but I'm going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the program that we got put into us as child is like, I can't stand this. I can't take this. There's no way out. So when we show people there is actually a way out, that becomes the true beginning of true healing. And I think that's, I think that's, you know, what I, one of the things that I, I wanted to get at with you today, and I'm ecstatic that we, we covered so much in so little time that it, there's, there is hope there, there's new things on the horizon. You, you don't have to be stuck on medication for the rest of your life. You don't have to be stuck with therapy for the rest of your life. There, there is hope for this. And that's what I want to put out there is that so much of anxiety is this victim mentality and you don't have to be a victim anymore, but that has to be a felt sense. You have to have a felt sense that you're not a victim anymore because your default setting, I will tell you as a, as a person in anxiety is this, is this victim mentality. And when you put yourself into something like an ice bath or you put yourself into something discomfort of discomfort, you're not a victim anymore. You've decided I'm going to freaking do this. Absolutely. And if I may end with a story, it's uh, I had treated a, a police officer, SWAT team member with PTSD, and uh, a group of reporters were doing some study, uh, some uh, documentary about refugees' trauma, and they decided to also come to talk about other people with other sorts and experiences of trauma. So they were interviewing him, and one of the things he said that I had forgotten was, I had seen other providers and they told me, you have PTSD and this is your problem. This is going to be your problem for the rest of your life. You got to deal with it. And you just, that, that's the real, new reality of your life. When I saw this doctor, after our initial interview, he smiled and he said, we'll fix this. And at that moment, quote, I felt my feet, I stood on them, I fought and I recovered, end quote. So I think that feeling of control that yeah these things can be handled can be fixed like any other disease of course sometimes 100 percent, sometimes 80 percent, sometimes 70 percent. yeah and uh yeah i totally agree yeah and there's help and there's hope that's i think that's what that that 
allows people to move forward. Like if you're in this learned helplessness thing where you feel like no matter what I do, and I hear this all the time from anxious people, I've been through therapy, I've spent thousands, I've done EMDR, I've done tapping, I've done all this sort of stuff, and I'm still anxious. You know, when you give people hope that, yeah, we'll fix this, there is this sense in them that's like, yeah, and then it it imbues their, their own self-healer in them to start taking over and getting out of that victim mentality and starting to really look at things differently. So... So I really appreciate, I always appreciate talking with you. We always go way over. Um, I'm really, so how can people find you, Arash? Uh, Arash Javambaft is my name. Actually, this is my book. And here you can find my name. Uh, you can find me on the internet, on Instagram. I share things like some little tiny clips about mental health. And of course, this is the book that is a summary of all I know about fear and anxiety. Which is awesome. And I love the book. And that's why that's how we initially got connected is I read this book. And I'm the cleanup guy around the house. So my wife usually cooks the meals, I clean up. And I couldn't wait every night to finish my cleanup so I can go back and finish the book. I finished the book in like four days. I just love it. I just love this book. I think everybody should get it. It's such a a great treatise in just the widespread impact that fear has on on us in this society. And there's no better time for this book than now. So thank you, Arash. Thank you. Uh, I'll have you back again. And it's just been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. It's always very thought-provoking to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And that will end the Anxiety Rx podcast for this week. So thanks for joining me and I'll come up with another episode next week. And if you have comments about this, please leave them and I will respond to them. And thanks again and see you next time. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book. Also, coincidentally, called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx Podcast.